Hey, <clears throat> we should do that from now on, and then I won't have to preach. That, so the whole reason I really hesitated to ever do Romans before and still hesitate now is this chunk, 9 to 11. Um, it is incredibly dense. Romans itself is incredibly dense, as you can see from that. Um, I wanted to catch us up to 9 to 11, and if I tried to do that, we would be here for like three weeks. So that does a good job of sort of catching us up, major high points. Here we are at Romans 9 with this big question that doesn't really matter to most of us, and that's the thing. Um, There's this huge question in the first century, right after Jesus ascends to heaven and the apostles start preaching the gospel, and this huge question is what about Israel? Israel has been the people of God for like 2,000 years, and now they really don't have this primary role in the people of God. Anybody can be the people of God. All the things that the Jews, the Israelites are supposed to do, now this new humanity who has been made by Jesus, made up of Jews and Gentiles, is really the ones who are going to accomplish that. And so this huge question, it's, it's, in, it's in most of the New Testament epistles, Most of the things that Paul writes, he's going to deal with this question, but it really doesn't matter to us. Like, most of us have never woken up and asked the question, have even been reading and thought, well, you know, what about the Jews? Like, when I became a Christian, that kind of was nice, but what's God going to do with them? I mean, like, there's so much that just doesn't matter because we have existed within western christianity for our whole lives if we're christians and christianity is now like over two thousand years old and so that initial question is kind of gone but in the text it's so important so we're going to spend the next three chapters trying to answer that question and really what is important is i want you to see is the fact that israel was awaiting their messiah for hundreds of years and when he comes they crucify him and don't follow him is just hilarious at one end. Like, it is, it is a comedy of errors when you see what the Israelites do to their Messiah that they've been waiting for 700 years for, or more than that. So they're waiting and waiting and waiting, and then he gets there and they crucify him. And what we see is that, in and of itself, was the act of God to extend mercy to the rest of the world. Had Israel accepted their Messiah... He would not have been crucified. Your sins would still be on you because Jesus would not have accepted the death you deserve. So do you see how interesting it is that Israel rejected their Messiah and that is of great benefit to you, to me? So we, we, we need to unpack this. and We're going to spend like four weeks doing that. Um, really underlying, looking at the faithfulness of God. Um, so... Like I said, Paul in 9 to 11 is going to show that even though Israel is unfaithful, has been unfaithful to God, they've rejected God historically, been sent into exile, now rejected the Messiah who's supposed to save them from exile and from Rome and all these things. God is, as you're going to see in the rest of the the next three chapters, um, God is going to use the fact that me and you are the people of God, that us non-Jewish people are the people of God, he's going to use us to make Israel jealous and draw them back into faithfulness to him at some point in history. And so we're going to start in the past and by 11 we're going to end up in the future all to show that God is faithful to fulfill promises that he made to Israel to use them to bless the whole world. 
which in fact he did use Israel to bless the entire world. The promise he made to Abraham in the very beginning of Genesis. Uh, and so tonight, though, that's all of 9 to 11, that God has not forgot about Israel, that he's going to come in and he's actually going to use us following Jesus to bring Israel back into right relationship with him. He's going to unpack that over 9 to 11, but tonight we're just going to look at is very complex, very dense. Um, this is one of those ones that people argue about. This is like one of those texts that if you're probably a guy in college and you have some dose of Christianity, you've argued about this text before, maybe not even know, gets all wrapped up in predestination and all this stuff. And so I'm going to do my best to kind of sail past that and highlight what I think is exactly what the text is saying. Okay, so I'll do my best. This is a dense text and I want us to kind of stay on. I'm not going to dive super deep, but hopefully this will make sense when we get through. Um, so to put this another way, just to be clear, Israel crucified their Messiah instead of following him. That crucifixion cleared the sin debt that covered all humanity, you, thereby allowing anyone, Jew or Greek, to come into God's family by faith. Ironically, it's mostly Gentiles who do this. But none of this has surprised God. It's all part of his purpose to keep his promises to Israel and to renew the broken creation, humanity and all of the universe included. So this first section, like I said, is going to show the sovereignty of God in Israel's history. It's going to highlight how God has used Israel in the past to accomplish his purpose, how he is still doing that, and how he will do that in the future. Um, so let's jump in. We're going to take it in about four sections. So we're going to be in verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness. This is Paul speaking. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are the Israelites. To them, now when he lists all this stuff, this is all the stuff we've talked about in Romans already. To the Israelites who have rejected all these things, to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs from their race according to the flesh is the Christ. So Jesus was Jewish, was the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Everything that's happened raises the question, what about the Jews? Is God faithful to the promises he's made to the Jews throughout the entirety of the Old Testament? So, um, let's just keep going. Let's keep going. Um, let's do 6 to 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. 
But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, Rebekah was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, let's, let's get into that for just a second, but not too deeply. Okay, so God, keep in mind what's going on. This is, this is referring to some stuff that happens in Genesis. Keep in mind, this is what's going on. God's created humanity, right? God created Adam and Eve, and in Adam and Eve, he was in relationship with them, and then they had responsibility. They were given dominion over the earth. So it wasn't just like they were put in the garden and like eat some fruit and have sex and be fruitful and multiply. It was do those things, and in doing those things, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the This responsibility of humanity over the earth to be in relationship with God and then to steward the earth on his behalf. That's why we were created. That's why humanity existed. And then very quickly, Adam cuts that off. Death, pain, all of the stuff we know and don't like about the universe enters in. And then in Genesis 12, so not very long later, God comes to a guy named Abraham and then says to him, I'm going to use you, even though your wife can't have children, I'm going to use you. You're going to have a child, that child's going to have a child, and I am going to make your offspring, even though you're like 90, you're going to have children, your offspring are going to be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, and then I'm going to use them to bless the whole world. And so when you follow the trajectory of of Genesis 1 to 12, what you see is when he says bless the whole world, he means fix everything that just went wrong in chapters 4 to 11. So Abraham, his son Isaac... And Isaac's son, Jacob, are the means by which God has now entered into humanity's story, covenanted with a particular guy named Abraham, and is going to, from him, create the Israelites who will be the ones who bless the world. And so what I want you to see in this text is what he's saying is just simply this. It wasn't all of Abraham's offspring that were chosen And when we say chosen, I really need you to keep in your minds, you're Western and the questions you're asking are how do people get into heaven when you come to this text? I want you to keep in mind when election is being talked about specifically in this text, it's under the heading of what about Israel and it's also under the heading of God chooses people to accomplish his purposes on the earth. Okay, he's, he's choosing Abraham to bring about redemption on the earth. Then he's choosing Isaac instead of Isaac's brother. So you remember the story, Abraham was kind of waiting for his child to come. His wife's not getting pregnant. And they're like in their 90s. This might be too much, but the more I thought about this, they're like in their 90s and God promised them a child. And so... And God didn't say that it's going to be like the Virgin Mary. It's not going to be this immaculate conception. Right? So I think he got the promise when he's 75. 75. It's like your grandparents' age. I'm sorry. <laughs> I wanted you to, I need you to feel the text. So there, there Abraham and his wife, until 90s, no child. 
That sounds rough and difficult and emotionally taxing. And then Abraham, or really his wife, comes up with the idea, I know how we can get the child. You, you know, do it with the handmaiden, the maidservant, Hagar. She, she can have children. So that happens, and along comes Ishmael. And Abraham presents Ishmael to God and says, here, here he is, my son. And God's like, no, 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 no. I promised you a son from you and your wife. You will have that child. You will have that child. That's Isaac, the son of promise, right? So that's why he says the son of promise, not the one of the flesh. It's not the one that you created by your own hand. It's the one that I'm going to give you by my power for my purposes. So chooses Isaac. And then Isaac has twins. And God says it's actually going to be Jacob, not Esau, the second born. And Jacob is really a terrible guy when you read his story. And so what you're seeing in this particular text, I want you to see two things. That God is electing or choosing not Abraham, you're going to heaven. Isaac, you're going to heaven. And Jacob, you're going to heaven. No, he's saying, I'm choosing you to accomplish my purposes on the earth. I'm investing in you that same responsibility that was given to Adam and he threw away. Do you see that? He brought them into relationship and then gives them responsibility. Okay, it's the same thing that happened with Adam Adam and he failed to do. He does with Abraham. And what you're going to see, Abraham fails, Isaac fails, and Jacob fails. But he still remains true to his covenant and his promises. So this election is for the purpose of fulfilling his original promise to Abraham to bring about reconciliation on the earth. And the second thing you need to see is he doesn't choose like the good guy. Abraham has already like cheated on his wife with the maidservant. He's also put his wife up in front of Pharaoh so Pharaoh doesn't kill him. It's kind of like here... You can have her, just don't kill me. He does that a couple times. Um, Jacob is a terrible person who swindles his brother out of his birthright and all this stuff. And what you see is God chooses these people because he chooses these people. It's not like he looked and said, well, this one's moral. And he didn't look and say, well, this one's religious. He just chose them because he is accomplishing his purposes in the way that he wants to do it. Because he is God and we are creatures. So that's what's being set up here. What we're going to see trace out for the next two little sections is God is really, I mean, Paul is really telling the whole story of Israel using quotations. This is super interesting. He's got two layers. He's making a point that's obvious, and then he's making an underlying point that you really need to know the Old Testament to see because he's a, he's a Jew and he's steeped in the Old Testament stories. So I'm going to try to unpack those two levels as we move through the next part. But keep it in mind, they're based, they, these they, these people are chosen, Isaac and Jacob, separate from their brother, brothers. They're elected by God. They're chosen by God to fulfill his purposes on the earth, to be used by him, not to just be special people, but chosen to be used by him for a specific purpose, be in relationship and responsibility. And they were not chosen because they were moral or good. They were chosen by the sovereign grace of God, period. Let's go. <clears throat> What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Because he's choosing this way without morality or religion or whatever. Is there there injustice on his part by doing that? 
Paul says, by no means, absolutely not. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that's a quote. We're going to dig down into that. You just need to take it at face value now, but it also is making you, the reader, remember where this quote comes from. And all of you know this quote comes from Exodus 33, which is a really important part of the narrative in Exodus. But you're Jewish and you're steeped in this, so you know that. But when he says that, he's saying, God has mercy on whom he has mercy, but he's also calling you to remember this story. Um, I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but it depends on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, another quote, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Okay, this is still about Israel. Do not jump into, don't jump into the whole, he chooses people for heaven right now. We might be able to make some claims about that later, but don't jump in there. This is about, what about Israel, and this is about the story of Israel at this point. Okay, so is God unjust for just choosing willy-nilly and not based on some sort of human standard that we use like morality or ethics or looks or something? And it's by, he says, by no means, it doesn't matter. And he gives you the quote, I have mercy on whom I have mercy and I harden whom I harden. And then what he's saying is, what I want you to see is he's paralleling two stories. The stories that he's paralleling with that first quote that he gives to Moses, have mercy on whom I have mercy. What just happened right before that quote is that Moses has been given the law He's come down off the mountain. The Israelites had just been let out of Egypt after the ten plagues. The sea's been parted. They cross the sea. They come to Mount Sinai. God's presence rests on Mount Sinai like they can see it. It's in this cloud and this smoke and they're scared. And then it rests there. Moses is the only one who can even touch the mountain and go up the mountain. He receives the law, the Torah, like we just saw. Receives Torah. And then he comes back down the mountain like I'm sure like happy. Like I've been talking to God and I got these rocks with stuff carved on them what's up guys and he gets down there and they have made a cow out of their earrings and their bracelets and they're worshiping the cow and he's like what the hell are you doing (laughs) and he breaks it he breaks it he goes back up on the mountain and God's like I can just kill them all we can start over from you. Moses pleads for his people. He says, no, don't let the nations see that you would lead your people out of Egypt and then just kill them. And then, Mo- and then God looks at Moses and he's like, you're right on, man. I like you. I like you. You're wicked, but I like you. And then... He asks Moses, what what do you want of me? He kind of just like opens up to him. And Moses is like, I want to see your glory. I want to see all of you. I want to see you like face to face. I want to be like in your presence. And he says, hold up. Hold up, screw. That's not going to happen. But I will hide you in a rock and tell you my name. And I'll pass by and you can see the backside of me. I get you get a little taste. If you saw all of me, you'd die. And that's when he says, I have mercy on him, I have mercy, I have compassion on him, I have compassion. This is 
what I do. So the Israelites have been wicked and faithless, and they've rejected their God after like three weeks of following him, after him miraculously rescuing them. So his people have rejected him and worshiped a God. While Moses is getting the law, of which the first one is, don't worship carved images, don't worship anything other than me, they're down there worshiping things other than him. And, and what he says is, I'm going to have mercy on them and compassion on them. And then he, he tells that story in juxtaposition or in contrast to Pharaoh. I had mercy on my people who are wicked, and Pharaoh is wicked. And Pharaoh, when they go in to, to try to get the Israelites out, Pharaoh has a hard heart, and he's like, no, I'm not going to let him leave. And then what you see throughout the story is that Sometimes Pharaoh hardens his own heart, but sometimes God hardens Pharaoh's heart for him so that he will say no, so that God will do more plagues on Egypt. So maybe if it were up to Pharaoh, they would have been led out there like three plagues. But God's like, nah, we're going we're to prolong this. We're going to do ten plagues. And he does that on purpose, sovereignly by his own hand. He hardens Pharaoh's heart. So what you're seeing is the juxtaposition of one group of people are wicked and God has mercy on them. Another guy is wicked and he hardens him so he won't repent and then he destroys him basically. And what he is saying there, have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'm going to harden whom I'm going to harden because I'm accomplishing specific things on the earth. I'm doing specific things by doing this. I have raised up Israel. I've chosen them not because they're moral or good. He actually says you're really hard-headed and you're stubborn and I chose you because you, you suck sometimes. And so I've chosen you for that reason. And then one of the things that he's doing in Pharaoh is, is showing in Pharaoh, at that time you've got to realize this is one of the strongest, probably the strongest nation in the world and whose leader believes they are a deity. And so in, instead of just bringing the plagues and letting Pharaoh off the hook and letting people go after three plagues, God is showing all of Egypt and the world watching that Pharaoh is not God. So that's why he hardens his heart, and that's why he prolongs the plagues, because he's showing you are not God. You think you're God. You think you're the son of God. You are not God, and you are not the son of God. I control your whims. I control I have power to do that. And so he's using Pharaoh for a purpose. Okay, let's get into the next section. I want, you to see, I want you to see those two stories in the life of Israel. So we're seeing, using the quotes, you're walking through the life of Israel. This is very dense. It's a weird Greek way of writing. But he's telling you something on one hand and underneath it, he's using quotes that you know because you're Jewish and you're steeped in it that really flesh the story out. So he's walked you from the creation of Israel through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the, to the bringing of Israel into the promised land out of Egypt and he's reminded you that God has been mercy in their wickedness. He's been merciful in their wickedness. And he's also been hardening Pharaoh's heart because he can do that sort of thing. Let's go to the next section. And he's going to flip those around. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Like if he's pulling heartstrings and stuff, why does he still find fault? Like is that, there seems something like wrong with that. Okay, keep in mind, this is still God accomplishing his purposes through Israel, and he's using Israel's story to tell something. Okay, 
Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So you're still seeing in that language, use. One vessel to be used according to my purposes this way. One vessel to be used according to my purposes this way. Okay, so as you're thinking election, it is there and its primary focus in this text is chosen for specific purposes that God sovereignly decides. For the time being, let's get out of our minds, like I said, chosen for heaven or hell. That's not specifically in the text at this point. Okay, and then we'll, like I said, we'll get there. I know y'all are eager. Like, I know you Calvinists are just eager. Okay. Uh, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And then the last verse, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then Romans going to pick up there next week. So the question that he begins with is like, if God has a hand in whether we repent or follow, can he still punish us? Like, are we still held accountable? And that's the one thing I really want you to see. There is this tension between a fully sovereign God who can do absolutely whatever he wants to do and whatever responsibility or will or freedom he's given to men, consistently asking them to make right choices. Your choices matter. You responding rightly matters. You're not little puppets on a string. So there's this balance between a God who is fully sovereign, can do whatever he wills and whatever he wants, and then humans whom he loves and he's given dominion of the earth to to govern. Hopefully within his direction and will and relationship, but so far not so much. So there's two quotes here. And what I, what I, this is where this, this text gets deeply rooted in some dense um, prophetic writings. This whole idea of the potter and the clay and the clay talking to the potter uh, is from four places in the Old Testament. Three times in Isaiah, one time in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 18. So what you need to see, what's going on in Isaiah and Jeremiah is something really, really, really weird. God is using the same exact language. He actually tells Jeremiah to go to a potter's house. And what's going on is he's using what Jeremiah is doing to show this bigger story. That Israel, after having been chosen by God and received his mercy, has rejected him, rejected him, rejected him, is worshiping other gods, worshiping other gods. And now the time has come for God to exact judgment on Israel because they've walked away from him so far, so much, that God is coming and now he's sending another group of people to punish him, to punish Israel. And so what's going on is God is saying, I have molded you for a specific use, and now I'm remolding you in exile. 
I am sending you into exile. And so he's locked up in this crazy idea that Israel wrestles with in their prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah being the foremost. They have to wrestle. You'll see this in Habakkuk as well. They are wrestling with this crazy idea that they don't think is possible. That God, in his sovereignty, is going to raise up and bless pagan nations, make them powerful and strong, so that they can come to his people and destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and take the Israelites out of Israel. So it's a flip each of the four times the potter and the clay is mentioned, three times in Isaiah, once in Jeremiah, it's all revolving around this tension that it used to be God was sovereign to forgive his people and to punish pagans. And now what God is doing is he has flipped it around and he is raising up pagan nations. He even says in the specific reference in Isaiah, he says, Cyrus, the prince of Persia, the king of Persia, is my servant, and he's really not, Cyrus worships a different God. He's my servant whom I've raised up, and every time he goes to war, I make him win, and I'm doing it because I'm sending him to your door. So now he's flipping the story on Israel and saying, because of your rebellion, because of what you're doing, I am now raising up powerful, non-God-worshipping nations to come and punish you. So it's still that idea of I have mercy on whom I have mercy and I harden whom I harden. Because when you read the book of Isaiah, what you see is God is specifically at work hardening his people, hardening Israel so they won't repent. And this is where he's beginning the story. And then the next quotes you're going to get to that Roman's going to cover next week is why he has hardened his people so they won't repent. And the reason he's hardened his people so they won't repent, is for your sake. It's for your sake. It's so his people will crucify the Messiah. And so what you're seeing is in the fullness of God's story, he has sovereignty over the hearts of his people, and even his people have freedom to respond and not respond, but there are times when he enters in and for specific purposes to accomplish the fullness of his will, enters in and hardens and softens. So you need to see that right now he's unpacking the story of Israel. The next, the next quotes that he's going to start pulling are from a different prophet, Hosea. And some of you that have read Hosea know the story of Hosea. I'm not going to get into too much because Roman's going to unpack that a little bit. But what you're going to see in the story of Hosea is that God sends a prophet to marry a prostitute. And when he marries this prostitute, he buys her out of prostitution, has children by her, and he names those children not my people, not loved. Forget the third one. And then the, the woman goes back into prostitution. And what you see is that God is at work redeeming his prostitute wife, Israel, and at the same time making people that are not his people, his people, Gentiles, you. Making those who are not loved, Gentiles, loved. So in the process of his children's names being changed from not my people to to my people, not love to loved. He's rescuing Israel 
and he's saving the world in fulfillment of the original promise in Genesis 12 to Abraham. You keep having sex, big guy, and you're going to have that child when you're like 99. And then that child is going to have a child. And then those people will be the Israelites, and they will bless the world. Through your offspring, redemption will come to the world. And so what you're seeing in all of this story is that God is sovereign to work within human history to accomplish his purposes. And what I want you to also see is he's free to do whatever the heck he wants to do along the way. Because his ends are good, you are creature, he is creator, but he's not a puppet master. And so the question then becomes that all of us want to know, well, does he choose me or I choose him? I don't know. Paul wasn't answering that question. He has power to do whatever he wants. Power to do whatever he wants. Our response is a humble response. Not a demand for answers, but a humble response to return to him. But to see in what's being said here is that he's not a tyrant, that he is faithful to fulfill promises even when his people turn away from him, even when there is failure on the part of his people, it does not mean he won't accomplish the end. Because what you see, the tension that builds in the Old Testament is that he makes a promise to Abraham. He covenants with him and says, it's through your people that the whole world's going to be redeemed. And when his people go off the deep end and start sacrificing their children to idols and start worshiping other gods and start doing all this crazy stuff, and then he exercises exile on them, what you begin to see is, is he going going to redeem the world still? Is he going to be faithful to his promise? Is he going to be the God who is faithful? And what you see is even in our failures, he is faithful. Even when we fail, he accomplishes everything that he intends to accomplish. And so what's supposed to be built by this text is not, oh, I wonder if he's chosen me or not, but what's supposed to be built by this text, it doesn't matter what you do, he's going to accomplish all that he purposes. And he loves you and he's willing to go to a cross to bring you back into his family. He's willing to suffer on your behalf. He became a servant of the rebels so that he might redeem the rebels and make them his children. So in him accomplishing his purposes and in him doing anything that he wants to do, you also have to see that his character is more loving than you can imagine more powerful than you can imagine and more willing to serve his creatures than you can ever imagine that he really is a good, good God. He really is a good, good God. And he will exercise his power for the good of the universe and your good as we walk in the direction that he's going. And so there's two, two places I want to kind of drive this home and apply this. The first place is of course, I know that, I can put it this way. Before Paul writes this book, several years before, he's actually not a Christian, and he's going home to home killing Christians. He's just going from house to house killing Christians. Most of the time arresting them, but occasionally there's murder. He's trying to squash Christianity. Jesus, who's been resurrected, meets him on the road to Damascus in glory, just jumps up, blinds him. 
who's like, Saul, why are you persecuting me, bro? And he says these words. Why are you, why are you kicking against the goads? Which that doesn't make a lot of sense to us because I don't think y'all have plowed with oxen and I haven't either. But that's what this is. It's a, it's a reference to plowing with oxen. When you plow with oxen, they're very strong animals and they're actually very stubborn animals. And so what you do is you have a sharp pointy stick. It's called a goad. And when you want them to move, you don't just, you don't like, you don't click, you know, you, you stab them. But you just give them a light poke if they're good oxen. You just kind of, and they start going. But a real stubborn oxen will kick against the goad. And what happens when the oxen kicks against the goad is he typically, he typically gets a sharp stick up in his hoof. Incredibly painful. Or he'll get a sharp stick up in his thigh. And so kicking against the goad doesn't really change the direction of the oxen. The oxen's still kind of moving along, but he's just in an incredible amount of pain because he's kicking against the goad. And that's what God says. That's what Jesus says to Saul. And why I think that's so important and so powerful is for this reason. God is, like we've seen, being faithful to accomplish something in history, in, in physical human history. He is working in the hearts and minds of people to restore and redeem the entire universe and to set everything right that's been set wrong. He has this thing on a path. And I think a lot of us get caught up in our own futures and what we want to see out of them. The money we want to make, the people we're going to date, the things that are going to satisfy us. We get caught up in building a life that we think is good and right and satisfying. And we commit ourselves to our own story, not really aware of the story that God is being faithful to bring about in history. And so when we're not steeped in the story and really seeing the faithfulness of God even in our failures, when we're not seeing that, what typically happens is I think a lot of us, we're kicking against the goat. Like life isn't going like quite the direction I want it to. There's always something that kind of goes wrong. Like, there's always this little thing that just doesn't seem like I can catch my groove and get the things that I know in my mind are going to be the things that satisfy and they're good. And, ha- like, life just doesn't click along in the way that I'd like. And I honestly believe that is God in his sovereignty saying, stop freaking kicking against me. I'm doing something. Let's, like, move along. I have good things for you. I'm moving history along in a direction. I have power and ability to set all things right, and I want to move you along and use you according to my purposes that are eternal and beautiful instead of you being used to, like, date the right person or get approval from the right people or get the right job or marry the right person or fulfill some sort of dream that you have. And so a lot of us kind of say, I believe in Jesus, but never open our hands to what he's doing in the universe and step in and say, I want to walk in your will. I want to open up myself to you. I want to do what you are doing. We say, thank you for forgiveness. I'm going my own route. And so it's like kicking against the goes because him and his grace is still got kind of a sharp stick sometimes saying like, come on, guy. Like, let's, let's go a good direction. I was doing that from 14 to 22. Nothing was going right. I couldn't do enough cocaine to make me happy. I couldn't get approval from the right people to make me happy. I couldn't drink enough to be happy. I couldn't sleep with the right people to get happy. I couldn't take enough Xanax to get happy. 
I quit doing most of the bad drugs and just smoked weed so I could get a decent job. Started doing real estate, just wasn't making me happy. Because God in his mercy was shutting me down. Because he had better things. He had better things. And so I think we can be there. I think it's easy to get there. Especially in college when there's so many voices. And then secondly, really quickly, I think for those of us who are following him and are really trying to go where he's going and submit, I think it's so easy to get wrapped up in the notion that you have to be perfect and that you can't fail and that you better do everything just right. Like some of you that are in nursing school or some of you that are like trying to be teachers, but especially you nurses, it's a difficult, it's a difficult major. But what happens is you begin to take on the responsibility that this is your life and you better be perfect and you better make the, the right grades and you better compete against all the people in your class and you better do this. This is on your shoulders, this is on your shoulders, this is on your shoulders. When in actuality, as you submit to the Lord, he is going to guide and direct you along a path that he has carved out. And so take that burden off of your shoulders, put it back on Jesus and take his, which is easy and light, and move along and move along and get rid of that burden of perfection because even when you fail, even when you fail, he is able to accomplish all that he wants to do in your life. And we've got to breathe that in, the freedom of failure. Like, we have to breathe that in. We have to breathe it in that we are moved along by grace and by grace alone. By grace and by grace alone. We are his children who swim in grace. We breathe in grace. We feed on grace. It's grace and grace and grace. So even in your failures, morally, even in your failures with school, even in your failures at every step, recognize that it's by grace, that it's the blood of Jesus that's made you right, Receive that once again. Get back on the horse and let's keep going. Hey, let's keep going. And slowly you're going to learn that it's not by your power and it's not by your strength. But it's by the power of the Holy Spirit and submission to his will. Okay.